Welcome to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we'll explore ecological restoration and cultural connections to nature in wide-ranging conversations. I'm your host, Jared Rosenbaum, and this podcast is born of my desire to connect with colleagues, mentors, and authors exploring communities, plant, human, and otherwise, and their interconnections across time and place. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, offering native plants, botanical surveys, and ecological restoration services. Find out more at wildridgeplants.com. My guest today is Leslie Sauer. Her book, The Once and Future Forest, inspired me to become an ecological restoration practitioner and continues to inform so much of my work propagating native plants, monitoring natural communities, and repairing degraded habitats. I'm so happy to welcome her as the very first guest on the Wild Plant Culture podcast. Leslie Sauer, a founder emeritus of Andropogon Associates, is a pioneer in the field of restoring and managing native landscapes. Through innovative strategies and techniques, she has directed the reestablishment of natural systems in a wide range of sensitive, degraded, and developed environments. Leslie was a key player in watershed management projects, including the Flood Protection Plan for the Passaic River in New Jersey and the Management Plan for the Rockaway River Watershed. Her park projects range from Central Park and Prospect Park in New York City to National Parks. Leslie was on the board of the Society for Ecological Restoration, as well as an adjunct associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Landscape Architecture Master's Program. Her book, The Once and Future Forest, is a guidebook for restoring and managing forest systems. In our conversation, Leslie talks about the early days of ecological restoration, forming Andropogon Associates on a shoestring, how doing model projects didn't always have the intended effect, and about compliance versus performance, engineers, pipelines, and much more. She's a true elder in the best sense of the word and has a fiery intellect and spirit. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Leslie Sauer. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Very appreciative that you've agreed to be the first guest on this as yet unnamed, but will be named by the time anybody is listening to this. So we're sitting here on your family farm in this cool, interesting, modest house surrounded by native wildflowers with hay fields around. Is this the spot where you grew up? It's where I grew up. I came here at the age of seven, okay. basically from the oil fields of North Jersey. Um, although a lot of it was a lot nicer then than it is now uh, in Orange, I'm born in South Orange. And it was a total revelation to me. I mean, it was like all of a sudden a whole new world opened up. And in those days, children were not allowed in the house till dinner. And so I was just outside all the time on the farm from the age of seven on. telling me about some interesting pets. Oh, we did have a lot. Well, you know, stuff happens in a farm. So we had pet raccoons, we had crows, we had robins. We had an owl once for a while, but they all kind of would... Skunk, I had a skunk quite recently. 
but they all get naturalized once we learn sort of how to deal with them. Uh-huh. We lost our first birds because I didn't realize it would fly away and call and ask me to come and feed it while it was up in a tall tree. So then I learned from that moment on, you teach the little birdie to come to you if it wants to eat something, which is a little different from what mother does. But How did your, how did your parents feel about pet skunks? And... My father wasn't so into it, but my mother was soft-hearted, and she'd always have some poor baby animal stuck in her shirt, keeping uh-huh. warm and things like that. With the baby raccoons, one year we had a couple of them, and we would take turns doing night shift and feeding and stuff. We just sort of didn't involve my father much. <laughs> so was farming brand new to your parents as well? Did yes. Did kind of come here from a different... My mother had um, wanted to be a wasp during the war, and she'd learned to fly, and they did point to point because they had no instruments at that time. So they flew all around here because of all the silos, and it was great for doing point-to-point flying. And when my father decided that he really wanted to get into the country and become a farmer, she said, I know just where to go. And at that time, there was a little train that came out here. So he just set up a little, like, 10-mile radius around the train stop. So that's how we ended up here. What what impelled wanting to... So that predates the whole sort of back to the land. I think he, my father was into absolutely everything. I mean, I still have a zillion bottles of, he used to make perfume and then he would, um, it just anything he could come up with, he would get into. And one year he got into living out in the countryside. He planted a whole little, he tried to have a whole little tree planting area out there, a kind of little mini arboretum and worked with Princeton Nurseries, which wasn't called Princeton at the time. It was Flemmer and Flemmer. Bought a whole bunch of exotics, you know, stuff like that. Uh, got all the Arnold Tree of the Year, which was always something awful, like a Zelkova or whatever. Uh, but he was just into all those kinds of things, sort of unstoppable. And with the six kids, he had staff. <laughs> so you were just pressed into these things. He loves rocks. We called his name was Rock. We called him Rock, and every kid about every kid knows how to work a cargo sling. We can move something really bigger than you would think into the right place. So that was early training for yeah, you. Yeah, very much so. Very much. Even though he knew all the plants, he knew all the trees. He could identify them by the bark. I didn't get that at all. But later on, when I got interested, I realized you were looking anyway. You didn't necessarily know what the plant was, but because you were outside all the time, because the woods is only 50 acres, you knew where things were, you know, you know what it looked like, you remember the changes. Uh, I remember what the creek was like and how much it's changed. That's the most dramatic thing of all. It was wide and shallow when I was a child, and now it's deep and ferocious. This year, with all the rainfall we've been having, it's like the rivers and the creeks have been running brown ever since ever since the spring. I can't imagine what it's like to be a fish trying to <laughs> suck that stuff in. A lot of the things were more toxic back then. Mm-hmm. So many of the, I mean, shatter coming back up the Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the 30s, you couldn't put a boat into a harbor in Philadelphia because the hull would rot away. Um, they did a massive coal ash cleaning all through Fairmount Park. 
So for a lot of the time, I saw things getting better and better and better and better and better. This is why I'm in such a state of shock now, because everything's getting worse faster. So just to provide a little context, you ended up being, a, forgive the word, but a pioneer of ecological restoration in this area in the Northeast. But there was not really a track at that time to get into that. So your track started out here on the farm. Actually, my track started at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and Ian McCarg had set up the landscape architecture division at Penn. And even though I was an undergrad, I was dating an architect and started hanging out with all the people in that department. And um, there was a man who worked there very early on named Nick Muhlenberg, who was an economist and an ecologist, who was one of the early thinkers in the McCard program. And he liked to go out and drink at a bar that I lived right next to, the deck. And we would talk about this stuff, and he told me the story of plant succession one day. And I was riveted by it, because I realized you've been watching it, even though it goes slowly. You've got 20 years of watching a farming landscape during a time when a lot of it was going back to forest. And I was so excited about it. He said, well, you ought to take a course next semester, which was my last semester in college, with Jack McCormick, who was Mr. Succession at the time. And I asked him if I could take his course. It was in the grad school, but he said it's a first-level course, a first-level ecology course. No problem if you want to take it. And I was totally hooked from that moment on. I later went to work for him. I went to the University of Jack McCormick. I worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. Tell, tell me a little bit about Jack McCormick. And also, if you don't mind, situate us chronologically. Oh, chronologically. Jeez, I'm not very good at this. <laughs> I have to ask my nephew well, who remembers roughly. all dates. I graduated from... I think I started working, let's see, I started working for McCormick in 69. Um, and the NEPA, which, you know, this was, the 70s was all about Nixon, whom I hated, but who passed every bloody law I've sought to defend since the day he left office. Yeah. Every environmental piece of legislation was happened under Nixon. He had to do it because the environmental stuff was bipartisan. Everybody wanted it. We just didn't think we could ever go back from that moment. Um, and so Jack McCormick, who was a scientist working at a field station for the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, well, I started out with him as just a field worker counting zillions of little plants and quadrats. All of a sudden he had things like, let's do an environmental survey of this place for an environmental impact statement, stuff like that. And so I was at a nice collision of a very earnest scientist with field studies, and then all of a sudden people like Ian McCarg's office coming to him and say, can you do an environmental impact statement for Amelia Island, for example, which is one of the ones I worked on. So all of a sudden there was this kind of application of scientific knowledge, and Jack was really good at that. He just had a, he was always had an eye for how you should have done it better if you'd bothered to look at the place. And so it fit him perfectly. And then after, but he was an extraordinarily difficult man to work for. Um, 
And after two and a half years, I just couldn't go on. I was like one of the old, everybody'd left. My friend Richard Albany, and I think lasted three days, and he was my ride. I was crushed. <laughs> but um, I then went to work for Ian McCard, which was just the opposite. He was possibly the most supportive employer I've ever had in my life. Um, and even though he could be difficult, it was in a different kind of, you had to battle with Ian. But if you were right, he would go along with, and he would defend you. I mean, he went up against Toddy Lewin and Clint Murchison. He went up with, you know, all kinds of really important people to say, no, this is what really, this is what it's really all about. And um, it was an honor to work for him, frankly. Can you, what's an example of a project that you would have done at that time? Can you well, the Woodlands of, uh, in Texas, 35 miles north of Houston, at a time when the city of Houston is sinking because groundwater recharge is just not happening and the groundwater's dropping. And the city of Houston has an ordinance where the weight of the building below ground has to be the same as the weight of above so it's floating in case it goes down further. So we started out from the perspective where we ought to be dealing with this since we're in the upper watershed that's feeding Houston. So we went up there and looked around a little bit and I think I first went up with Colin, I think it was, and we looked around. Every bloody oak tree was dead in every, de or gone, just gone. In every development we looked at, they were all pine. And yet this forest was a rich oak pine forest, almost kind of big thickety-like, not quite. And when you look at the development, you realize why, because the way they developed was 70-foot wide, 75-foot wide concrete ditches, 15 feet deep, and they just drained all the water away. <laughs> so we tried to say so our entire focus from that moment on at the Woodlands, phase one that we were working on, was maintain recharge. What it is today is what it's going to be later. And that became our mantra. And we started working with um, an engineer at Turn Turner Collie Braden, and we see all weekend long he would do all this kind of math out loud, and Colin and I are listening, what's going on, what's going on? But he concluded, yes, it would work. And once he concluded it would work, then it was money. And our basic thing was you have to get the, get the bloody houses out of the floodplain, please. <laughs> Number one, that was the hardest decision to make. But it turned out that the cost of their concrete engineering system versus our getting rid of the houses would have saved them $14 million on word one, first go around. So then they were okay with working with us. And then we did a development plan that was based on soil type. And the idea was, since this is all flat-ish, <laughs> that we would use things like roads to create elevation where we wanted to pond water. And so these super sandy sites that might become the first place you build your high rise to us became sacred land because we could have a, a road go around it and have massive amounts of infiltration through this stuff that might as well have been nothing but holes. Um, and, and then other sites, the amount that you could clear was based on how much forest it took to recharge an adequate amount of water to maintain conventional recharge. And it, we did a little workbook on how to do it. It worked beautifully. Um, the people who ran the initial bulldozers didn't believe some of us, and they drove right into what was called a Waller Pond and lost their bulldozer. And then they, like, they went with us for the rest of the way. And there was a monster storm, a classic Trinity River system storm, and the woodlands did just fine. 
And if you go there today, it's really quite iconic in that it is all about not clearing the forest and stuff like that. Interestingly, though, this was all pre-regulation. And over time, every, every engineer in the country Xeroxed what was done in New Jersey with um, restricted, uh, you know, when, when they restrict the um, outflow. And gradually they went to a system that might have didn't work in New Jersey anyway and certainly doesn't work in Texas. And I did, that was the most interesting thing about a lot of the early projects that we did, is they were pre-regulation. You had to convince somebody that you actually could do this, and then it would work. And you just, and of course we had this notion that having a model that worked would be meaningful. It turned out to be an utterly bogus idea. I think it filled Andrew Pogon all the way through, you know, the later business that I started with uh, three other people. If we can really show what can be done, other people will copy this. I, and it wasn't true at all. I find that so interesting because I feel like so often we're trying to create models. Right. right? Whether we're in some progressive agriculture thing, we're going to model this for yeah. everybody. Or God knows all the nonprofits around here with a little restoration, but it's going to be a model and everybody's yard, no. of course, will look at So I'm curious for you to unpack that a little bit more. I'm well, I think part of the problem is that. perspective there. I think, one, at least in the early days of Andropogon, I think we were actually too sophisticated. You know, it did require, we really, bent, you know, we called in scientists and we really tried to figure out what was going on and how could we better replicate it and th things like that. And in some ways the solutions were too elegant. If I had it to do all over again, I would drastically simplify uh, some of the approaches. Uh, like later on, it just became, if you can recharge the three-year storm, you're going to make your recharge here in New Jersey. I don't care how the hell you do it. That's another thing that I think should have been part of regulation that is not, which is performance. It's all compliance. It's not performance. So you can put in all your ridiculous stormwater mechanisms. You can flood your neighbor out. But if you did what you were supposed to do on paper... It's okay, and it can fail over and over and over and over and over again. But you complied, they complied, we all complied, and nobody goes back and looks, but it doesn't perform. Every early study they've done on uh, controlled release of runoff has shown that it doesn't really work because by the time all the streams come together and it's still a dramatic increase in the amount of water, so in fact, Bound Brook floods for three weeks instead of three days, you know. And we've known this for years. And there are good examples on how to avoid this, but the agencies and I think the professions in general have been completely co-opted by industry, which is really unfortunate. But pre-regulation, you just had to convince, you know, E. Ross Perot to do something, or you had to convince, you know, and it was different. If you had a bull in charge like Ian McCart, who would just charm them and out-talk them, and he just made things happen that were not easy to make happen under other circumstances, and it really infected us, you know, with this notion that do it differently. You can do it differently. And that was our goal in Andropogon, because a lot of the other partners 
at Ian's office did not want to do the way Ian wanted to do it all the time. He was eventually even driven out. Uh, but it, at Andropogon, we wanted to do it that way all the time. So take Period. us forward to Andropogon from working for mm-hmm. Ian McCarg and tell me a little bit. Well, in the course of working Andropogon for McCarg, I met Colin yeah. Franklin. Rolf and I met Colin Franklin. And when I got pregnant and had a baby and pulled away from the office, Ian offered me a part-time teaching job with Colin's wife, Carol. And so we taught together for a semester, and the four of us got to know each other really well. And we realized, boy, we all really think alike. We've all worked in some capacity with Ian. We've all worked in some capacity with Edgar Wary and all of our icons. And at that, at that time, it kind of seemed easy to start a business. That was a crock, but we just thought it was going to be easy. Um, and so we started, we, of course, we had zero capital and things like that, which wasn't smart, but others have done it. We had two, each couple had to put in $250. One was for the selectric and the other was for stationery. <laughs> and that's where we started off. Do you remember what your first project was? Our first project, project was, was a house that wanted um, its landscape. They were just people. And we started talking to the wife, and she said, well, what I don't want is everything that's around me. And of course, everything that was around her was classic, invasive, suburban crap. And so we go, well, we can give you something different. (laughs) We can go native. And she was kind of willing to take that. And conveniently, her husband, I don't know whether he suffered a back injury or it got worse, but he was unable to work his lawnmower. And so when we proposed a meadow at the same time, they went for it. And that was really how it all began. But I think the pivotal thing that changed everything for us was a job we did with DuPont. Because we'd been doing some work and we'd been working with architects and one architect really went out of his way to get us an interview with this DuPont to do a landscape around a suburban corporate site. And I go out to look at the site, and they've already done the plans, and they just want us to put what Carol would call parsley around the pig. And the plans were awful. They involved completely destroying and damming a little stream, trying to pretend it was a retention basin, flooding would have been significantly... It was just a nightmare of a plan. And I go back and explain to everybody that, you know, what do we do now? You know, if we just reject this and get snotty about it, it's not going to look very good. And what do we do? And classically in the past, we would have done like our version of what you asked for, but try to tell them why our version was better. But it, this didn't even seem like that would work. And so we decided, okay, we'll give them an andropogon plan, and then they'll reject it. And so we do our plan, which involves completely throwing out all of the stormwater management going back to the agencies and reapplying for your stormwater permit, which you can imagine how much they like that idea, to do permeable paving so that we didn't have to gum up the stream and we could leave all the forest intact and then we had a little woodland restoration plan as part of it. And I'm giving my presentation and after it's over, I'm sitting outside and there, all the other people are going to present are sitting there And the project manager comes out and sends the other people home. And it was an instance where the project manager was very, very smart. 
and he understood that flooding off-site was a major liability, that they were going to get into a lot of trouble if they did this, and that, let's go for it. The agencies were astonishingly cooperative to recognize that this was a time frame issue, but they got it. They'd never seen porous paving before, but you know, sometimes things work and it just went very, very well. And we put the porous paving in. I remember the day it was, was kind of opened up for traffic and they came out with the fire hose and just started releasing water onto this pavement. And it went on and on and on and on and on and on. It was just fantastic. And then that winter, it turned out that even though it was a little further away, it was used by everybody who was old or handicapped because it didn't have ice on it. And of course it lasts. So it was just a really wonderful, and where you learn the lesson, sell what you sell, sell what you are, and drop that other crap. And we did. We just dropped it completely. We didn't even argue against it, you know, we just said, we don't do that. You mentioned porous paving and creating a meadow and forest restoration, some of these other things that I'm curious, having not been there, where were ideas coming from? Where did you look for inspiration? How much of this was sort of out there in the soup and how much of this it was pretty out there in the soup in that sense um there really wasn't very much to read um we did do a lot of field botany classes though for our landscape architecture students because we wanted to teach them native plants instead of horticulture and when you go around even though the scientists might not be complaining about the fact that there's all this invasive crap he points it out he talks to you about it. And once you decide to try to restore something, even though you know you can't go back, uh, people get upset about the word restoration because no, you can't go back. But you kind of have to see what worked. How did this site work? Was it all about infiltration? Was it all about standing water? Was it all about, what was it all about? And it always went back to water. I mean, the way this, the stormwater was managed on these sites that always became a driving factor, as well as, I don't think we cut forest ever, really. We just didn't do that. Um, and there were not very many models, but the Society for Ecological Restoration started out in California. And even though they were working in very, very different landscapes, we'd been in business, I don't know how long, maybe even a decade, before, maybe not that long, maybe five years, before I was asked to be the Northeast rep for sir which meant going to the conferences and all and that's when i realized ah oh, that's where you learn everything you go to conferences that have practitioners and we didn't have any in the northeast uh but we started them with sir uh we had started at rutgers and when we left carol said well there's a little blood on the walls isn't there we certainly divided the audience let's put it that way but once conferences started everything was different and you just went to con you know i would go to soil conferences to see Elaine Ingham and um, to, you know, poly any kind of conference that related to these things. And then you would meet the people and you would ask them, what should I do? I remember we asked Jim Harris working in Central Park, how do we begin to get fungi back in the soil that is agricultural, it's dominated by bacteria? His first suggestion was to dynamite some very large trees so that we would get 
a huge spray of different sized slivers of wood all over the floor of the forest because wood cannot be broken down by bacteria. Only insects and fungi can do it. And f while we were unable to explode large trees in Central Park, fungi restoration using wood became our focus. So we tried these dead stakes we would drive in the soil that was compact where the wood would decompose. We made mats of, basically we, we would take uh, wood chips to areas of the Adirondacks that had great fungal cover, and then we'd spread them out and come back, not very thick, come back six months later and you could lift it up like a cloth, you know, take it back to the woods. Um, we would do things like spreading wood chips, very, very thin, but trying to create a system that just made it impossible for anything but fungi to come back, uh, stuff like that. But about that, it was, there was Jim Harris right there. Um, it was all kind of people that we would bump into who had an idea about how something ought to be done. And it seemed, Elaine Ingham was very much so about this. Uh, the evolution of the soil food web and why you can't grow an old forest on a juvenile food web and how to get away from uh, that kind of thing. And over time, I think this kind of reverence for soil, do not mess with soil. You just can't go back. You can't restore it at all. It's just a plain old given. It's like the Vermeule sites in New Jersey, the sites that have never been agriculture. They are the last best refuges of native plants. Um, you just can't go back. Uh, you know, our lawn that's been here because it was once a hayfield and then it got cut and is filled with fireflies. A new lawn that's been sprayed with lawn chemicals is not gonna have fireflies. You know, you can't go back. And we're very into mixing and disturbing soil therapeutically, you know. When we did our first pipeline, in New Jersey that was going through this beautiful woods, um, we came upon this notion of actually digging up blocks of soil that were like six inches deep, five by eight feet, stockpiling them on the side and just wedging them back in. They were only out of the soil for 24 hours. Uh, but we could, but in, it took a real battle with soil conservation to not scrape this topsoil off first. Well, it's not topsoil. Once it's scraped, once it's in a pile, everything died. It's the life in that topsoil that's making it topsoil, you know, not just the structure of that topsoil. And so that's kind of what I focus on big time in terms of whether it's stormwater, forestry, leave that soil alone. You're, you know, I, the, my big concern with forestry these days is it's impacting the capacity of the forest to support forest again, of the soil to support forest again. Uh, you know, it's one thing to take the big trees for veneer, but it's another thing to chew up the soil to a point mm -hmm. where it has been dramatically compromised. So in those early conferences, you mentioned flood on the wall. What were some of the things that were divisive back then? And Just going still... all native. People thought we were completely ridiculous. Uh, even at Sur, yeah. the first, I, I, I remember saying, are we talking about restoration with a capital R or a little r? Because I was given this thing about stabilization with, you know, something quick growing and ghastly rather than a native plant that might take longer. We got grief on um, the South Branch restoration because with this huge, long slope that had been denuded and graded, and we knew the native grass was not going to come back in time 
to stabilize it, but we just did a whole little sequence of connected palms. So by the time it went down the kachinka, uh, it didn't come out at the other. There was no water that came out the other end. There was no soil. There was no erosion. And eventually they all grew up. Soil Conservation Service was agitated at first because soil was moving on the site and wanted a huge 800-foot-long you know, parabolic channel. No, there's no channel here. I want the infiltration to be just like it was before. And so this is always, you know, kind of um, a battleground. People don't, are, are not really into infiltration. It's as if um, the structure is the only thing that matters. You know, how do you make a, um, how do you infiltrate, you, you dig a hole in what was a wetland, fill it with sand, and then plant, uh, you know, your rain garden plants on top. Well, what about, what about what was there, you know, what about... It's really bizarre. What is there is given like almost no credit at all. And nor are you penalized for the loss of the capacity that you gave up. You clear a forest to put in a retention pond? You must be kidding me. Get real. I'd rather flood the forest a little bit. There's some... <laughs> After some time, you ended up writing a book while right. you were at Andropogon? Yes. Uh, I went to a conference in uh, Penn State. How'd you get your arm twisted into taking well, on a book project? I, well, it, was, it was Penn State that did it because I went out there, and it was really funny. They were do, Penn State had this notion at the time that they were, of course, they're dead center in the state of Pennsylvania, but that when the hard times came, that they would be an ideal location, that people were going to be flooding to places like Penn State because they weren't tornado city, they weren't on the water, they weren't flooded, they weren't this blah, 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 blah. And they were getting ready for an influx of people. And they were looking for kind of guidelines for what you do in the future. They had a whole bunch of absolutely extraordinary people, but I was the only female and the only non-doctor. So for a whole weekend, I had a doctorate, <laughs> which was very nice. And, um, but I realized this is why I'm there. But they all kind of had particular fields that had to be. And I was kind of looking at just how do we manage land. So I did a kind of overall thing. What are the issues? What are we, where are we going? And I realized I'd written a summary of a book. And at that time, there was no such thing resembling a book. that covered. There were... A, probably four or five different restoration publications, but they were all collections of chapters by individual writers who were writing on a particular thing. But nobody started in the beginning and said, you know, what's going on? I really wanted something that was meant to be, you could read it as a, you know, an eighth grader and understand it in that sense. Um, and that was kind of the motivation. And at first, all of it, but it was, it's just very hard to run an office and write a book. So that's when I started getting up at four in the morning. Um, and I had to tell the, the FedEx man, no, you cannot come here at six o'clock just because you know I'm up. <laughs> but, um, and it took a long time, but it and was you interesting. And children at the time too? Or? Yes, my daughter was older by the time I was writing the book. She was little when we were starting out. Um, and she would go to school a lot of the times to teach at school. Uh, she went on a number of sites and projects. Um, 
we did a, another design build at Penn where she was called Bucket Woman and was carried around in a bucket on the site by different people, you know, stuff like that. That part was very difficult, trying to... Penn told me when I started to teach there that I didn't need to worry at all because they had childcare. And I thought, cool. And of course, a fool that I was, I didn't ask any further because I assumed. Then I found out, well, childcare is three times my salary. So that that so was not, not an option. <laughs> it was not an option, right. Not complimentary, not even, you know, equal to my, three times yeah. my salary. So I went, oh, well, that's not an option. It is a sort of odd. And we learned a lot of things teaching, though. Uh, I think one of you talk about sort of pivotal kind of projects, like our first studio project, we use the farm. A studio project is where you do, you know, a big, long thing where you do all the details, the plan, all the drawings. And those days, it was three days a week, four hours a day. Um, and so we picked my farm because I knew every inch of it. I had all the maps. You didn't have to waste any time on research. We could yeah. just hand it to them. And it seemed totally simple. And we were doing a little development because that's what we were supposed to be doing on for that semester. So Carol and I thought, well, you know, well, we want them to get in touch with the natural landscape and the farm and all of this. So the first day we had them out, all we asked them to do was, the, where would you put your house? Where would you put your house? And you only have five acres. So if you have a really, really, really long driveway, you're going to use up some of your land. But that was like, it was almost a joke. And they're all out there sketching and having a wonderful time. And then the next project we said, well, now we're going to put the whole development in. And instead of having each one of you do a development, I mean, each one of you will do a development, but you have to fit all 12, you have to fit 12 houses on it because there were 12 students in the class. And we said, obviously, there are going to be some conflicts now and then. So you can make rules as a group. Just make rules. You know, well, you can't, you can't do that because you'll block the driveway or you can't do that because I really like that big tree. Whatever the hell you want. Well, there was a lot of flurry. Hurry up, they're voting on me, you know, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the vote of the 12 houses, one survived. The community nixed all of them except for one. And it was just an astonishing lesson if we ask you to be a pig, you'll be a pig. <laughs> if we ask you to be a member of a community, you will be a member of a community, quite happily. They had no problem with it. They got it, you know? And I just feel this is such a core problem of what we do today, is we really don't start with a set of, what are our shared values here? What do we as a group want? When we did our first pipeline, we had two different counties, multiple townships, blah, 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 blah. And everybody's asking, wants to hold out to the very end because they'll get the biggest payout. And I want a fire truck and stuff for the senior center. And we started going around to all the music. You know, this is a multi-county project. You could ask for something that was really big. Why are you asking for a bunch of little things when you could have something really big? And the pipeline people were holding out fake big, which you could have a right of way for walking on the pipeline. But since most of it was private land, they hadn't have the right to give it away. So you'd have to go back to the road every 37 feet. And we said, what if we got a real trail? What if we said to hell with a pipeline and just bought the lockwick, the crossing of the, uh, the gorge? And what if we got to walk across the old railroad trestle? And what if we got the... 
and the townships went for it. And it's interesting because the pipeline came to us late. They hadn't, they hadn't done all their work. They only had a year to do it, and they were really worried about getting people to sign on in a year. We made it. It was fine. People were happy with the outcome. Now, of course, then they pulled the bankruptcy stunt, and we had to go through a lot of that crap. But um, again, the commun when asked to be a community, a bunch of quarreling, you know, me, 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 townships didn't behave that way at all. I take it you're talking about the Ken Lockwood Gorge? Yeah. Which is extraordinary. Really one of the most beautiful hikes. One of the most beautiful hikes. In New Jersey. Right. It's stunning. I actually took my dad out there a couple of weeks ago from Yonkers, and he was just... And it, it beats a couple of fire trucks. <laughs> it, it definitely beats a couple of fire trucks. And I just find this... It, we did find this to be true as a business. Um that when we worked with local people, uh, when we worked with contractors, these there weren't any hurdles. It's only when we got back to the political realm and some engineer defending his turf or some, that everything became so difficult to achieve. Um, on, in the pipeline, it was, at that time, the pipeline right away was 50 feet, and we thought that was way too big in the woods. Now, of course, they want 225 feet through Stokes. Um, but we came up with a plan that got it down to 35 feet, where we were able to move these blocks of soil. But it was going out to lunch with the owner of the construction company and his head field man, where we talked about the fact, but we don't want you to drive your heavy trucks on the soil because then the wildflowers will come back. And they came up with the idea, well, what if we put worked on top of the spoil? And we went, you can do that? And they said, well, we can't for 24 hours, we can't do it for a long time, but this thing moves forward, the line just keeps going. We were just dumbfounded that that was a possibility, you know? And then all of a sudden, whoops, we gained another six feet because we don't have to put the spoil on the side of the... At every turn, these are the people who figure out, you know, we were able to say what I need to do, but they were the ones who figured out how to do it. Like we were even, we had this idea of bleeding up blocks of soil, but we couldn't figure out how to get them anywhere. And I'm thinking, well, gee, I have a, uh, a conveyor bait for hell hay bales. Do I send them all up to the front of the string? You know, we're all just drinking and trying to figure out what's going on. And then they came up with the idea, well, we'll modify a front end loader. And we went, okay, that's cool. <laughs> and they come out with a front end loader that has what looks like a giant pie scoop on the end of it with these stabilizers. Then they start to dig up these blocks. So it's not going well at all. We're just like cringing. The stabilizers are getting in the way of the soil blocks and the roots that are sticking out. And we're about to give up the whole thing. And Carol notices that there's a very small man twitching, working the front end loader in his mind. And Carol turns to the, the head contract and he said, could this guy try the front end loader? And he says, well, why not? He's new on the job, just got out of jail, but why not? So they put this guy on the front end loader. He works it for about 10 seconds, and he says, get rid of the stabilizers. At that point, we're desperate. We get rid of the stabilizers. And he starts lifting up the most beautiful blocks of soil you ever saw. We all just go, holy, you know, this guy knows how to do it. He knows how to operate this machine. The angel on this machine, it was just incredible. And there we move along, lifting up the soil, putting it back. We've got exactly no soil fundamentally really screwed up. 
at all. And then we would enclose the fencing so they could just drive through on the path. Nobody touched it again. We had managed a few exotics. It was really nice. One day we even came out and all the hard hats on them had pasted a picture of a front end loader with a little turtle on the front end loader. <laughs> and they were all wearing their little turtle hats. And when we opened the beer box, it had Perrier in it. <laughs> so we was in like Flynn. <laughs> we had a wonderful time on that job. And it was terrible weather. They would have lost time under any other circumstances if they made a big mud puddle out of the whole thing. It rained and rained and rained and rained. We didn't care. So, fast forwarding to the present, how would you describe your role or your involvement now? What takes up all your time? Uh, well, of course, a lot of the pipeline battle. Um, it's just a shocking, <laughs> shocking situation. So, Phil, to be anybody in. who's not in this local area, well, Pennsylvania is sure. filled with natural gas, and they want to get it to the coast so they can export it, or to Philadelphia so they can turn it into plastics and export it. And 12 different pipelines have either been built or proposed to the Delaware Valley. New Jersey has almost no natural gas, uh, but it's going to have these 12 pipelines all through the central part of New Jersey and some of the northern part. And it's not needed. <laughs> this, the land that we've already been, uh, the pipeline that, I'm, that goes through our property, the Penn East, uh, one of the 12, uh, has already been approved by FERC. Um, the current capacity of pipeline systems around here is about 43% are being used. We don't need this thing. They initially said it was for the region, then they had to add in 12 states and they still couldn't find a big enough market for it, except they have demonstrated they have a market because the six partners in this project have bought and sold it to each other. So it implies that there's a local market, but it's really about all getting to the coast and trying to do export. It's a known lie. The Ratepayers Association has objected furiously because one small group of ratepayers is going to bear this billion dollars of project that isn't for them. They won't get anything back from it. And of course, these contractors are guaranteed 14% profit on this job. That's incentive enough to build a pipeline, much less. And it's just done, what ba it, they don't follow their own rules, much less have rules that are adequate. Um, they have a safety commission that has basically admitted they can't do anything. Uh, new pipelines are exploding at a much more, a much higher rate than even old, clunkety old pipelines. Um, the, how did a right-of-way get to be 200 plus feet? How can Panisse say, oh, we conform to the lousy soil manual that Ferg gave us, but they exceeded it. They didn't conform to it at all. So they have limited regulation. They violate them right and left, and it all still goes ahead. Um, the information that they submitted has been consistently wrong, completely wrong, and they fix it over and over and over again. So you have to read the impact statement in 42 different submissions where we changed this and added that and filled out this little thing. I mean, it's just unconscionable that FERC said. Their cumulative impacts of a couple of hundred miles of pipeline covered, I think it was one and three quarter pages of the impact statement, was written by a kid 
who got out of college a year and a half ago and spent a summer doing field, you know, nature study in a camp and one year working for a chemist tasting chem, testing chemicals. And this guy writes cumulative impacts. Come on. I mean, this is just pathetic. FERC lets it happen. We've lost court case after court case, but we have delayed it successfully. There is a case that is in the court right now because we have, bless his heart, a stupendous attorney general. The attorneys general all over the country are doing amazing things. And his protesting court is still moving forward. It's a case that has not been thrown out. They haven't stopped saying that the Natural Gas Act of the 30s does give you right to condemn private land, but it does not give you the right to condemn state land. And 40 parcels in New Jersey are state land. If he wins, this particular pipeline is over. And of course, all they did was connect the dots between preserved properties, because it's Seems easy. Seems like a lot of the pipeline trajectory goes through some of the highest quality landscapes. Highest, because they're connect, they don't want to deal with residential people. Mm -hmm. And they want to have just a few landowners. You can do miles on a big park. It might take yeah. you 57 little landowners. Uh, but the information is still wrong. But once FERC has accepted it, it's like gospel, which is really unfortunate. But we are deeply in the battle. And of course, since everything was wrong and they are resubmitting information, the Delaware River Basin Commission hasn't weighed in yet. Every inch of that pipeline has been surveyed by one of the people who are involved in this thing. And if it's there, you know about it, probably. I mean, it's just, you know, but will it do us any good? Uh, the federal government's trying to stop the role, the, the states from having any role at all in this review. That would clearly throw it into court. Where would pennies be at that moment? Um, Delaware River Basin is one case against pipelines that were already in the ground because the court case takes so long. Were they taken out of the ground? No. So it's, uh, that's a lot of the battle. I've all also been working with you um, and the Highlands Commission on this issue of how to protect forests in the highlands and to have an ordinance that actually uh, meets the requirements to provide for some development but allows for compensation and priorities. But it's taken a long, 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 long time because it's a really difficult subject. And of course the whole forestry battle is a really difficult one. Fossil fuels, forestry, agriculture, they're all mastodon in the tar pits doing uh, a lot of damage in the name of good. You and I have collaborated a bit in the past around floristic quality assessment, which is a method for assessing the health of, or the quality of both wild and restored landscapes. And I'm curious how you got pulled into the swirl with floristic quality. A conference. Quality. <laughs> a okay. conference. Yeah, and what do you see as uh, Bumped into Jerry Wilhelm, and all of a sudden he started talking about it. And he talked about how when he was a young surveyor, um, he would go out and be looking at all these landscapes, but they get into one and the old engineer who took him out said, this is what it used to be. This is special, this is. And he just talked about how it kind of went through him, like succession, the story of succession went through me like a knife, you know, and he just got it and started really focusing on that kind of thing. Uh, he told a story about how when he was doing it, like some relative he's walking around with and he sees some marvelous plant like an orchid. She's about to cut it. And he says something like, well, well you know, blah, 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 blah. And she says, well, how do you know the good Lord didn't leave this for me here to be cut? 
And he kind of responds with, well, how do you know the good Lord didn't leave it there so that your children can see it and your grandchildren can see it? And again, it's this kind of community focus again. And the level of collapse that I've had to witness in my, I've probably been looking at it for 65 years since I came to the farm, um, is really painful. For a while, there was a sort of rising of consciousness but in the last 20 years, basically, no, 40 years, since Reagan, uh, was the, the sort of cast catastrophe began to unfold, is all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 no. It's all about jobs, which was never the issue. We were making jobs galore. We'd still be making jobs if we went into sustainability. Uh, but it just, the politics changed so in a terrible way. What are some of the things that you've seen go wrong over that arc and well for example when I was a child this beach this forest down here was beach beach far the beach forest is a late successional forest it notoriously has the least under it compared to other forests because the beaches are piggy wiggy trees when I was a child and had a horse we could not ride through the forest we had to actually use a bush hog to make trails through the forest it was that kind of dense it was filled with viburnum and beach, just everything. It's all gone now, just all gone. There's no understory. There's not a tree down there under 35 years old. Even the beech sprouts have been eaten. When I was a child, if you saw a deer, you called everybody and told everybody, I saw a deer, I saw, mind you, on, on your fo- a phone that had a, what was it, we had party lines. <laughs> no, we didn't have that. We had a thing like that, Mrs. Leroy, dingling, Mrs. Leroy. It was just really exciting to see a deer. Now, of course, I want to give me an Uzi. I, I could be a, I could be such a killer. It's just hard to even imagine uh, what has happened to this forest. Um, but I've also seen. Um, it's as if did we learn anything? <laughs> Why? But it's, again, you know, most of these development plans are done by engineers, which I think is a profession that has been highly co-opted by development. And they fight tooth and nail. I remember when I was working with the state of New Jersey on some regulatory changes, I was talking about some stormwater, and some guy who was had a very high official position said, Oh! We solved that problem in 1991. No, you didn't. <laughs> you passed a law in 1991 that didn't work, but you didn't solve the problem in 1991. Controlled release does not solve the problem. If it's got 10 times as much water coming off, that's the problem. And so I've given up on engineering and that. Now, there are some fabulous engineers. Uh, and we have been totally dependent on them, all of our profession, but they tended to be academic engineers. Um, like we had difficulty in a township near here arguing that where all this native landscaping was going in in these wet meadows. Uh, the local engineer was completely hysterical. And we just called an engineer from Temple that we've been working with, and we said, well, would you mind work? Well, the two of them got along like a house of fire, and everything was fine, and it all went ahead. And because I think all of them do have this kind of fantasy of what engineering was when they thought they went into it. You know, they saw fabulous bridges and things like that. And 
all, and I think they're all kind of disheartened to be entrapped in this kind of horrible little game where you go through the motions, but you affect nothing. And um, so we have always found, I mean, it's never been the hurdle. There's always been a way around it, no matter how many people were lined up against you. Um, somehow, they do have the actual training. And if you create a circumstance where they can go along with this without losing their job, they will, which I find very interesting. I mean, I can't say we were, Andropoga was not stopped. We turned down more jobs. We didn't get stopped in jobs. But we didn't get some jobs we thought we ought to get. Like after we'd solved DuPont's problems with all their drainage, I thought, well, they'll hire us for other things. Well, no, the other things got rubber stamped and they didn't need to hire us. That sort of thing was interesting. So you saw projects really work out, but not necessarily then spread through the system. No, not at all. It tended to be in nonprofits that we would see it spread through the system. Because the nonprofits actually want to do what they say they want to do. It's not something incidental to what they're doing. What are some tools and techniques that you really liked that you'd like to see more widely adopted that would address some of the problems that you've just seen? Well, I do think this reverence for soil is a really big issue. I'd like to see a real regulatory practice, uh, you know, uh, effort to really preserve soil uh, in a really, really serious way. Um, I think performance does have to matter more, and I do not know how you affect that in the system because it's just not there. But Almost all projects are required to be monitored. And the problem is the monitoring is, like, did you cut down those invasive plants that you said you were going to cut down? It's not, was that enough to reduce the problem? And so they don't tend to monitor the outcome, they monitor the activity. Did you do the activity? But I think if we could push for more outcome monitoring, uh, bad practices would become more patently obvious. But has asphalt worked? I mean, really? It's cheap and lousy. Uh, it does not seem to be a problem. Has stormwater management worked? Who hasn't been flooded? That People who weren't flooded for hundreds of years are now underwater. So it is interesting to see that failure is not a hurdle as long as you have power and lobbyists behind you. I was working on a restoration project at a farm and I really wanted to get some monitoring and of native bees. I'm going to try not to be too particular in this example. And I reached out to one of the relevant government agencies to say, you know, can you recommend somebody or can you bring somebody out so we can monitor whether the sort of regenerative agricultural practices we're using are effective? And they said, well, we can have somebody come out and give you a plan and we can incentivize the plan, but sorry, we can't help you with monitoring or identification or figuring out how to figure out Right, if the plan actually worked or not. This is why I tell everybody, go to conferences. <laughs> the Stewardship Roundtable is a perfect example of we should have one in the North Jersey, we should have one in South Jersey. You've got to be talking to people who are working on the ground and seeing what they're doing. New Jersey, I mean, all of the early work was done by amateurs. And it's got to be recognized as they set much higher standards. Uh, because that's the outcome they're into. It's not a short-term job to them. It's not a contract. It's a life. And um, how we get there without... I mean, I keep hoping the young. I mean, the young are... I mean, Greta Thunberg is my hero. 
and I think in the restoration field, we this whole regenerative agriculture, I think, is a re, yeah. restart, retention forestry, I think, is where it's at. Um, but how, as Greta says, how do you make them see their houses on fire is really, really difficult. And I look at, you know, in 40, 40 plus percent of this country clearly doesn't get it at all, maybe. Uh, but things change quickly. Things do, but I think the backlash, the backlash is already scary as hell. When regulators, you know, when legislative members are hiding out in Idaho behind guns so they don't have to vote in Oregon on a cap and trade, when Bundy gets off for ravaging re, you know, natural resources and artifacts, something's really scary. And it is the American problem, isn't it? Individualism. I mean, like we're all narcissists, if you get right down to it. Are we a nation of immigrants or a nation of narcissists? You touched a little bit on monitoring, and I want to ask you about sort of two M's, monitoring and maintenance, and how those ideas may be developed for you over time and where you'd like to see them be, because you know, just to frame it a little bit, I feel like as I get a little bit older and a little bit more experienced, I realize that there's so much glory given to the design process <sighs> and to being the brilliant mastermind who figures out... Design outlaws. But the design may fall is, apart is very great, quickly. But if you don't have, so, it's really the implementation yeah. and maintenance that takes it somewhere. And so I'm curious, how did that work out for you? Well, it is project? interesting. One of the first it? things we tried to do was to get people to reduce their capital cost and allocate some of that to maintenance. Never worked once. We tried to, people who treated us as if we were the best consultants they'd ever had. We could never, ever, 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 ever get anybody to do that on a capital project, which I found really interesting. I realized, I don't know where all the money's coming and going, but it clearly has something to do with that. But it's also just antithetical to the way people think. I started out in monitoring with Jack McCormick counting, and one of Jack's big things was how do things change and if you spend a couple of years even looking at some of these early sites, oh, not quite in the way you expected. <laughs> and we'd walk around, and like I remember one field broke out in Penstemon. All of a sudden, it was just solid Penstemon. And Jack just cracked up. He said, you know, I threw those seeds in there seven years ago. And there were just a lot of things like that that were going on. And it was also at a time when everybody was into this analysis paralysis crap which I think was really a response more to the fact that science wasn't speaking up and telling us what they knew and what we should be doing. They just did their thing. And they didn't tell us, you know, well, you should have stopped this. You shouldn't have done that. Um, and I think that's part of why people lost interest. Uh, but once you start looking around, you realize, but, well, I'll give you a good example. We taught a stormwater management course once, just one year. And the first day of class, it was pouring rain. And Colin sent them out, and he said, okay, come back with something that works and something that doesn't work. Sounds simple, doesn't it? They came back the next day. Every single person said the same thing. Nothing works! <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, Colin said, now you will see why I will tell you why all of these books are wrong. They have some of it right, but a lot of it wrong. 
I remember when I started fighting bloody New Jersey on the issue of their stormwater management, what they were upgrading, and when this guy told me we had no problems. They were using, what is it, TRW to figure out um, uh, generation of runoff. And I said, but it's, I've been telling you for 50 years, these are all wrong, all wrong. And anybody knows who looks at anything, anytime you monitor something, it doesn't add up to that. And um, somebody said, oh, well, you ought to talk to this guy in Delaware. This is his big thing. Oh, he thinks they're all wrong, too. He's kind of ornery, though. You better be careful about how you talk to him. And he, he's not so young anymore. And I said, well, I'm not young anymore either. So I called him up on the phone, and I start my conversation. She said, Leslie, this is William, your former student. You told me this 50 years ago, and I've been chewing on it ever since. And I said, oh, well, I guess we're going to have a good conversation here. Oh, so forgive me if this question sounds general. It just means you can take this in whatever direction you want. But how do you feel like culture fits in with ecological restoration? You know, it's really interesting. I read a marvelous book once, mm. uh, Environmental Environmentalism in American Culture, something like that, Kendrick. I think wrote it, and they did these surveys. It was an academic project, and they broke people down into things like um, dry cleaner operators, bird lovers, you know, things they thought would have very specific uh -huh. kinds of responses. And they asked them all sorts of questions like, what do you value? Do you, you know, you think we should spend more money on the environment? Would you give some more money for the environment? Do you think the differences between the dry cleaner operators and the bird watchers were insignificant, statistically insignificant. Now, this was, you know, 30 years ago. But still, the Reagan thing had already happened. There was a lot of anti-environmental stuff. They all saw dry cleaner operators, you know, can't use. And these people realized, well, shit. Oops. Uh, <laughs> uh, curse all you want. Um, this isn't the answer. Everybody cares about the environment. Why are we doing everything wrong? Why can't we get anything right? Then they set up a new thing, which was what do you know about the environment and what are your sources? Well, it turns out that most people's sources of information about the environment tend to come from their work environment, the place they're working. And all of a sudden, the gaps appeared. Do you think global warming is caused by humans? Yes, no. I mean, it wasn't that simple. Yeah. But that's where... All the so the misinformation, the misinformation campaign, I do think is the single biggest problem. I think if people, when people know what's going on, they actually, I, I still have, despite <laughs> the current situation, I do have a much greater faith in group decisions. I believe in consensus is the way to go forward. We don't agree on it. When we started in Central Park, there was so much hostility. People wanted to cut it all down because the jogger had been raped. And then other people wouldn't touch a damn leaf. Um, Betsy Barlow was called psycho slut carved into wood because she cut down, you know, a tree. And we started with, there must be one thing we could agree upon, despite the fact. And, of course, the original thing was we can't have her on the meeting because they don't like one. Those are exactly the people you want on the committee who are all the people who are complaining most of all, who cares most, you know. I don't care where they're wrongheaded. If they care, they're going to come to the meetings. And the first thing we were able to agree upon 
is that the areas that were hideously overrun with stuff like knotweed were scary to everybody. Okay, let's start there, you know. And gradually, as you can see, Central Park is just completely devoted to restoration. It's a classic sort of post-industrial restoration project. And it's not that difficult to convince people of these things. I think the well, bigger problem is there aren't very many outlets for them. And I don't think, for example, monitoring. Why isn't everything on the phone? Why do I have to go to, you know, everything should be done on our phone. for It should be easy to monitor, yeah. not difficult to monitor. You mentioned the Japanese knotweed, and I'm wondering, can you nuance the debate about invasive species? In us? terms of are the species of the future kind of thing? Yeah, well, that, I mean, there uh, is this novel landscape approach. Yeah, I want to get into that, and I just want to get into, I feel like, we're talking about a lot of different kinds of species across groups. We're talking about pathogens. We're talking about plants. They're badly predatory invasive species. I mean, an invasive species is different from a plant that might naturalize in a more gentle way. How did that debate Although sort of Although, Carol itself? and I used to call yeah. things neonatives if yeah. they were kind of sweet. Yeah. Chicory. Half of our neonatives turned out to be very bad. They were not sweet. It takes longer for many plants to me get really bad. Uh, well, some of the invasive cherries. Just, what's the Prunus avium? What big deal? Prunus freaking avium <laughs> is everywhere. I remember when it was not, not all over. Mm -hmm. the, I remember when we saw our first microstigium at a Boy Scout camp around the fireplace, and we thought, I've never seen anything so pretty in my life. Yeah, it was under the grass. forest. Mm -hmm. It looks so pretty. And we thought, geez, this is, could this be a new grass we don't know about? Of course, we take it down to the academy and get told, no, it's China packing grass. It's an invasive species. And now it's everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. everywhere. I remember the first kudzu I ever saw was in um, uh, Palton Village in Philadelphia growing on a wrought iron fence. And I remember telling, this kudzu, oh no, there's no kudzu in the north, there's no kudzu in the north, well go look at the Schuylkill River now. So it's scary to say that. Um, I don't get agitated about buttercups in my yard because I've been watching buttercups for 65 years since I was seven and they haven't done anything bad. I haven't seen, you mentioned, um, it was blue. Chicory. chicory. I haven't seen chicory go in the woods, yeah. so I'm not excited about it. But as a rule, <laughs> be very, very careful. And what is a pest in one place um, might not be a pest somewhere else, yeah. but it still might be a pest in that one place. You don't necessarily know. So why do it? Why even do it? Why don't we, you know, I just don't get it. I love the, I mean, I do get the Victorian notion of, um, you know, bringing things from all over and having all of this, but then contain them in a safe way. We used to think arsenic was good for makeup, too, but we don't use it anymore. You know, I just think we've got to get past. That's not what we're supposed to be doing now. Like trees, yes, you can plant some trees that are non-native, but why bother? If you're going to put municipal energy into telling someone to plant a tree, well, make it a native tree so you can actually contribute to something larger. Um, but again, it's this community thing that is, um, you know, that's not flying really well right now. And so it's really disheartening.
you kind of feel like, well, you did everything wrong. <laughs> I'm curious about some of the stuff you said earlier about timeline and watching things change over time. And recently on a project that we were collaborating on, it came up, what's, what's a sort of appropriate time after which to evaluate whether or not a upland forest restoration is successful and without getting into that exact debate with those exact people. Well, I do think the issue is where is it? Yeah. Because if you're up in some of these areas of central Jersey that have been chewed down beyond belief, where stuff is gone, 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 it might take two decades to see. But, for example, over here, William Wyman's property is probably pushing well over 20 years, but it's breathtakingly beautiful. It's just unbelievable. Uh, but I don't think, I think a lot of places aren't going to show enough to reward you. Uh, for at least maybe um, 10 years at least. So you've got to pick a, you know, a place that is, has some hope of really coming back. Uh, I think it's more, is more of that. Uh, but it is going to take a long time. And if you want to see herbaceous species, forget about it. It would have taken 500 years, and by then the climate's going to be so different. Uh, you're not going to be interested in those species at all. Um, I am really interested, though, in the speed with which uh, some of these successional landscapes, if they're well-established, might show some improvement. Uh, one of the things about these um, ag fields that have been done with native grasses, if you release these things, they're not going to be taken over by exotics as rapidly as like an old ag field or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, they're going to, slowly, and maybe even slowly enough, that you can manage them a little bit. There's very few places in New Jersey where seed sources are not abundant for trees. Almost everything is wind pollinated and wind distributed. So, you know, there's just a whole lot of plants that are gonna, if it can get there and if it's suitable, it will be there. Um, but we don't, again, we don't let nature do enough. <laughs> uh, we do too much ourselves, which I think is a real problem. And then we have to count everything. How many survivors, how many this, how many that, you know. You're making a swamp forest, I don't want as much coverage as you think I need. Uh, things like that. Again, what is this whole thing of reference ecosystems and what's the model and how is it supposed to work? Because they don't all work the same way. So you'd like to see a site go through some succession I'd like to see you establish right. a reforestation. And I'd like to see you establish a relatively stable stage of succession so that it is manageable. And are you taking us back to the soil? Well, well in case to things that are happening that... that you mean that, that is what happens with the soil. The soil have. food web evolves yeah. with the plants that are there. Um, and it's interesting that succession tends to make every effort to be slow. It doesn't race. Why do goldenrod and asters have leave soil residues and have uh, exudates that suppress the growth of trees to hang on to their meadow phase for a longer period of time. Again, when I worked at Jack McCormick's, we would go out to a site, a meadow that he'd been monitoring that had these little tulip poplars in it. And he would go out and monitor these tulip poplars year after year after year. We'd go out, they'd still be in cotyledons. It was like no development, just waiting, waiting, waiting. I'm sure soon enough, if they were able to keep on, they were going to grow, but it, they were very suppressed. And um, you can just see that. 
uh, for example, the experiments where they, uh, at Rutgers and at Pennypack, where they added wood chips to the soil, thinking maybe it would benefit the herbaceous species, which it did not, but the trees went bonkers. How long does it usually take to have a lot of wood in the soil? It usually takes a little bit of time. Yeah. So there are ways in which you can accelerate it a little bit, uh, but it does go slowly, and it probably takes 500 years to get a proper old forest under conditions that had a lot more equilibrium than we have now. So you mentioned reference ecosystems and you mentioned novel ecosystems. Can you quickly define both of those for us in the most generous terms and then um, just tease out a bit how you feel about each of those concepts? Well, in most instances, a reference ecosystem is going to be an ecosystem that is relatively intact, that you're using as a model to see how an ecosystem in that environment, in that soil type, etc., functions. A novel ecosystem are the things we're basically creating now. We bring plants from all over the place, we throw them together, and in some places they are making what are quite appropriately, I think, called novel ecosystems. And I think there is a kind of high degree of appreciation amongst many people for things that just grow willingly and uh, fill that up. Uh, I used to threaten my students back when and say, you know, I hope the time never comes when I have to give a lecture called In Praise of Norway Maple. Because if that's all I have left, it's going to be really, really bad. And I think that is the core problem. While you're busy appreciating things that may grow under very difficult circumstances or may actually thrive under difficult circumstances, are you evaluating what they produce in terms of a supporting habitat? Uh, are birds able to live there? Is there, you know, what is, and when, when I hear these, when I read these articles or these books about these really interesting ecosystems, well, they're a lot less interesting if you look for a lot in them. They're simplistic, reductionist, they don't tend to evolve very well. And so, yes, my worst fear is pretty soon that might be all we have to count on. But right now, it's not the answer. The answer is still preserving what we have, uh, changing forestry so that we are not decimating anything resembling an old forest. One of the things that we have found is that the oldest forests are the most resistant to climate change. They're the most resistant to losing their species. So you've got to save the things that actually can survive and really invest in that soil that really does support um, a high degree of... Yeah, there are going to be a lot of problems there, but this is the intelligence of the universe. DNA and what they've come up with is what... And you just don't want to cut your supply of intelligence when you have a lot of really hairy things to face. These novel ecosystems are going to be showing up all over the place. And maybe some of them will be proved to be somewhat valuable. But I don't see anybody going out and finding all the most wonderful things in the world. Um, some of the area up by Kearney Marsh is a really good example of, I think, um, why some people might get interested in, in a novel ecosystem and how it demonstrates the opposite. Uh, a big chunk of Kearney Marsh, when the turnpike went in, was all of a sudden cut off from exchange and became a, a freshwater marsh that was immediately taken over by Phragmites, giant reed, whereupon most life disappeared from it. Um, 
But over the decades, as these uh, Phragmites got old and decrepit, these mats would sink to the bottom, um, and all of a sudden there was open water. And when there was open water, all of a sudden more birds started showing up. And then after another 10 years, by golly, some of these mats came floating back up and were suddenly great places to establish like a quaking bog type environment. So I think some of these novel ecosystems can get a whole lot better with lots of time. But they're going to get better when they start functioning more like real ecosystems in that environment. It's still, the trajectory is still towards the reference ecosystem, even though clearly our ecosystems are going to be changing really, really, really dramatically. It sounds to me like you did a lot of restoration work, uh, you know, with Antrobogon and elsewhere in urban areas. Uh, yes. Areas that people might say, oh, this is too far gone. This could never support a native habitat or right. native habitat assemblage. What was your experience in... The better it is when you start, the easier it is to have good results. The worse it is when you start, the harder it is to have good results. But if you, and, and as you use the word trajectory, that's all I'm interested in, really. I mean, like, I remember once somebody said to me, oh, Leslie, has, you have a vision of what things, I have absolutely no vision of what things should be. I have no idea. I just know I want to be heading that way instead of that way, you know. What will be the actual outcome? And I don't think any restorationist thinks in terms of knowing what the outcome will be. They just know by studying the reference ecosystem that they're beginning to do things in ways that make sense for that place. And even though it might be getting hotter, wetter, colder, or whatever, the geology didn't change, you know, its position in the hemisphere, it's still on the coast or not on the coast. Um, so a lot changes, but a lot doesn't change. In addition to whatever plants might have been part of that reference ecosystem. There's also processes. What are some processes that you'd love to see come back or processes that you would have liked to have had in your toolkit if you had a chance to work on some of these projects? Oh, it would have been the ability to convince people to actually observe what's out there. I think that is the single biggest problem. They don't look. Um, for example, when we started out doing the woodlands with Ian McCarg, we spent weeks studying the site, every little inch of this site. Nobody, oh, we look at a map that we got off of the internet. Um, I did the soils map back in 60, maybe 1970 for the state of New Jersey, and then we mapped it again um, in the 80s for the state of New Jersey with much more detailed maps. It was absolutely incredible. But I think that's what people do now is they look at the maps. And yeah, they're good. I'm proud of those, but you know, they're old. One of the things we did was to note how these landscapes had changed since the mapping that I did with Jack McCormick. Now it was, I don't think, nobody ever asked us a single question about that. We identified areas where there were extreme changes in drainage and how they'd been shifting to pitch pine lowlands and blah. Nobody was remotely interested in it. I think I'm the only person who's ever seen like you know, 87,000 aerial photographs of the pine lands. There'd been the fire in 63, um, so we had to use you know really early maps for some of it, the 50s maps for the 70s stuff, because 63 was still black 
in a lot of areas. All of the military facilities were inked out. And Jack just said, well, go on them anyway. And I remember there'd be firing ranges. It was just unbelievable. But even when we did our second mapping, the quality of the aerial photography was so stupendous that we spent very little time on site compared to every single map I would spend like day or, you know, half a day checking when we had only crummy black and white photography to, um, which was interesting. When we went to the woodlands, you could tell what species of oak it was. It was like, whoa. <laughs> Through the aerial photos. Through the aerials, they're just astounding now. But they're things to be seen on site as well. They're things you can only get in aerials. We mapped, when we did the stuff for New Jersey, again mapping, there were lots and lots of cedar swamps that have been all cut in the middle with camouflage left on the outside. We mapped all of those. We mapped all the piles of steel drums that we saw, which were all over the pinelands. But you could see them. It was amazing in that regard. You mentioned that sites that were better when you started were then easier to take through the process and some sites that were really in poor condition were a lot more challenging. Any examples come to mind of sites that were really bad? Well, Central Park is a good example. Um, it It was almost all a planted landscape. If it was a volunteer, it was non-native. Um, some government, I can't remember, had given them a whole slew of Norway maples that you could actually see that all been planted in lines through the park. It had been massively graded to create terrain and things like that. And that's when we discovered that you got bad soil, you got nothing to work with. For starters, the soil was filled with lead. <laughs> Luckily, plants don't seem to mind that as much as people do. And you could see it moving down the soil column as we kept testing it. Um, when we started looking for fungi, of course the upper zones of the soil were dead as doornails. We actually ended up buying three different augers because we kept breaking the augers. We needed a very expensive, powerful auger to get down it all. But we found fungi living way down there where they're not supposed to be. And I think that's true of a lot of landscapes. What is left may take a very long time to come back, but there's more there than you think. Um, you can certainly see that at William Wyman. Stuff has come back 20 years later. Holy crap. Never knew it was there. You know, we haven't seen it in that long. So I think that is a kind of upside, but it's like climate issues. It's a very tiny window left before we've screwed it all. Uh, you better take advantage of it now. Um, good sites. Um, we don't get to work on a whole lot of good sites. But for example, um, things like in Texas, we're not all overwhelmed with non-native species, things like that. The Yopon, that hadn't been so impacted yet. The issue was water. Uh, and then that forest could go right on being just what it was supposed to be. Fencing. You fence an area that's good, na- like Apshua. Yeah. Put a fence around Apshua, and how, you, how many years has it been? It's been 10 years. What's five years, maybe? And Apshua is like, wow. So it ha- But Apshua was good already. That's why it got fenced. And now it's so much better than possibly they even thought it could be. Yeah, Apshua is a preserve in northern New Jersey. 
uh, with a deer fence, probably 300 acres deer yeah. fence. And, and we had to go to the township, the town. The understory, it's just amazing. Flower, little oaks everywhere. You never would have thought it would have come back just that quickly. Just basically by keeping the deer out. Yeah. And um, we had to go in front. In fact, I, they called me in to help testify before the township because a lot of people in the town were upset. Um, it turned out that a lot of people would go hunting back there and they thought the fence would get in their way. Uh, some of the volunteers, some of the firemen said, oh, well, we'll get trapped, things like that. Uh, but they used a kind of fence that had clips to a steel rail. And Michelle Byers was able to show, she was the head of the New Jersey Conservation Foundation that did it. She could pull it down. Yeah, the bear was pulling it down too, but so could she. Nobody's going to get stuck. And you just have to walk everybody through all the steps. But in the end, most of the time, a group of people who have been empowered, and there's a one person who you know has the big gavel, they often come up with a good decision. That's what bothers me today. It's not that people can't make good decisions. They're never put in that position. Some consultant engineer tells you what you should do on this job, or nothing is, you know, there's so little collaboration compared to what we used to do when we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> We just rope in everybody who sort of had a thought. What do you think about this, you know? But now we have these authorities. That's why I was so opposed to licensure initially. Because I just saw it not as a bottom below which you can't go, but a ceiling above which you can't get. And I still think that's a serious problem with licensure. Leslie, it sounds to me like you've taken on a lot and really been there watching and observing with your own eyes and feeling a lot of the changes that have been both good and bad during your, during your tenure. Is it just part of your personality from the start to be able to handle all the stress and the heartache that comes with No, I suffer seriously or? from cosmic despair. It's a a major, major problem. Um, and you just, it's, I guess it's like somebody, you know, if you're a neurosurgeon, 90% of your patients are going to die. Yeah. Um, the thing that is so wonderful about it is the people you meet. The people who are involved in, even the ones who have big egos are wonderful, absolutely wonderful, because they have these really positive values, and it's for everybody, and they're remarkably selfless. So that part really, 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 really makes you feel good. Um, and even though I used to say, well, I'll be dead before that happens, and now I'm seeing all this stuff <laughs> I thought I'd be dead for, and I still want to be dead. You know, that, there are things I don't sorry. want to see. Even though I live in mortal fear for what my grandchildren will face, when you're with them, you're in the moment. And so spending time with my grandchildren actually eases the fear of what they face, because that's not what you're thinking about then. You're thinking about how freezing cold the water is, and why are you going out so much further, faster than I can go out there, you know? Things like that. But I would say it is the people. I mean, you, you go to the round, you know these people, the round table folks, and the people, they're fantastic. The native nursery people are amazing. And you, and you know, you're, there you in this little sort of fishbowl of stupendous people, and for a moment, you can actually, it's really going to be okay. <laughs> you go out, and that's chipped away at big time, major time. 
But you can go into a world where it actually looks like there's some hope out there. Seems like a great place to end. Thanks so much <laughs> okay. for spending the time today, Leslie. Oh, good. I'm starving. Put some food out. <laughs>